Metaxas Show with your host, Eric Metaxas. Holy cow, Alvin. Yes, I'm still, sir. I'm still on vacation, but John Zmirak lured me out of the weeds. I said, uh, I want to I want to talk to John Zmirak today, uh, even though I'm on vacation. It's just fun to f- find out what's going on in the world and what I should think about it. And John Zmirak, he gives us both. So in a couple of minutes, we're going to spend the rest of the hour with John Zmirak. Hey there, folks. As promised, John Zmirak starts with a Z. John, uh, we never talked about your review of the film Mr. Jones. Uh, Why don't we do that last? Because that, to me, is the most fun thing. Okay. Uh, What is the other thing that you wanted to talk about? There was one or two other things that you've been writing about at stream.org. Well, it's been very poignant to me learning of the death of Mikhail Gorbachev. This is somebody who played a really huge role in your life and in mine without necessarily intending to. And I'll I'm not tell jo- you, I'm not joking. I, I'm on vacation. So you mean to tell me that I missed this big news? Yeah. Yesterday, Mikhail Gorbachev died. I literally didn't know that until you just mentioned it. Oh, that is wow. astonishing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And there's a lot to be said about it. I remember the day. In 1991, when the hardline Russian generals tried to seize power from Gorbachev to arrest him or kill him and reimpose communism and start the Cold War up again. I'll never forget because up until 1990 or so, I had always assumed I knew how I was going to die and how we're all going to die in a nuclear war. I was 100 percent sure that because I lived in New York, you know, which was a prime target, I was going to die in a nuclear war. And so was everybody else I knew. Nobody was going to have grandchildren. Nobody's going to be remembered. Nobody's going to have a heritage. Nobody's home was going to exist after he was dead. Behind us, we would leave nothing but an ash heap. I had always assumed growing up in the Cold War, that's how I would leave this world. I would have nightmares about it. I woke it up multiple times after seeing my body get hit by a blast wave or killed by radiation. Um, That started to go away on on a subtle, inexorable way, thanks to Gorbachev's reforms in Russia, where he was trying to impose what he thought was socialism with the human face. He was he was mistaken that that doesn't exist. That is impossible. If you want the human face, you can't have the socialism. If you want the socialism, you smash the human face. As we're seeing in America, the socialists are smashing the face of humanity uh, in the name of social justice. So Gorbachev is that rare thing in history, a man of immense power who rose to power on his own. He didn't inherit it. A man of immense power with control of the means of violence, who willingly let go of it, who now, was wait, not willing. John, do we, do we have to clarify um, that Gorbachev uh, clearly did uh, a good thing, but it seems to me that it was Reagan, principally Ronald Reagan, that, that forced him to do no, that. No, I don't think so. Gorbachev, he, Yuri Andropov wouldn't have been forced. 
Um, another president of another Russian president wouldn't have been forced. They could have used violence to stay in power. No, no, I don't mean. Well, that's I don't what mean I mean. Forced, forced. What I'm what I'm trying to say is that Reagan, by displaying the kind of strength he did by by talking at Reykjavik about uh, Star Wars and not being willing to back down, he kind of he. That's what I mean by forced is that he sort of we can say nudged Gorbachev uh, toward dealing with the reality that this wasn't going to work and that he had to take uh, this other path. Gorbachev was already intent upon dismantling the the Stalinist parts of of Soviet Russia. His own family had been in the gulag. Um, So I I think Gorbachev was a sincere reformer. He was trying to do something impossible, which is a non-totalitarian version of Marxism. That's like saying we're going to have a non-racist fascism, a non, a non-judgmental theocracy. No, I mean it's baked in the cake. Marxism, coercion, and violation of human rights is baked in the cake with Marx. But Gorbachev didn't believe that. He thought he could square the circle, and the result was he dismantled the governmental system he had. Been, he had managed to, to, to take charge of. When he saw it was going sideways, he could easily have cracked down. And, and the U.S. wouldn't have intervened. It's one thing to say that he negotiated arms control with the West, and that was a great thing. But he could have done that while remaining a nasty dictator and imprisoning his opponents and shooting people, and we would not have lifted a finger to stop him. He allowed himself to let go of the reins of power and go from being head dictator, potentially for life, of the second most powerful country in the world to some old man who goes to TED Talks, you know, who's like a a former U.S. president. I will. I'm deeply touched by that. And I'm especially moved by the fact that our current inhabitant of the White House the secret committee formerly known as Joe Biden, uh, jab, as I call him, uh, the former Joe Biden. The former Joe Biden is someone who came to power in a just democratic system, the United States. You know, had flaws, but a basically good and decent system. He came to power that way, and he is going to leave behind a tyranny. He started political purge trials. He started using the secret police to crack down on his political opponents and demonizing his opponents as enemies of the state on television broadcasts and treating them like mental patients or dangerous radicals when they simply were his political enemies. So Joe Biden is doing to America the opposite of what Mikhail Gorbachev did to Russia. and. Uh, Right now, we're right now at about the point where the U.S. is really not more free than Russia is under Putin. I think it's a great historical irony that Gorbachev dies at just that moment when the two lines cross. Do we know? Do you know how old Gorbachev was? I think he was in his late 80s or early 90s. It's just amazing. uh, I'm amazed that I that I missed that. That's how you know you're on vacation because you miss stuff that ordinarily you would have heard 10 seconds after it happened. 
But that's it's a major thing. Listen, there are a lot of young people probably listening to this program that they don't know this history. Right. Uh, and it's important to uh, reiterate what you were saying a few minutes ago. You and I grew up uh, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s in what was called the Cold War, where we, the United States, were in a perpetual Cold War with the former Soviet Union, the evil empire, in the words of Reagan. And it's it's such a strange thing because the whole world was shaped by that conflict. Uh, it really is amazing. You have these two superpowers pointing uh, innumerable nuclear warheads at each other. And when that went away, uh, b- because of, of, of Gorbachev, and I, again, I still think it's because of Thatcher and John Paul II and Reagan that they sort of forced him in the right direction. But the point is that we lived in a world where we thought that was never going to go away. We were told this was the permanent state of affairs. And obviously it wasn't, which should give us hope, John. At least that's how I look at it. It should give us hope because it was presented as a monolithic reality. It will never change. All we can do is get get along with it. We had people like Kissinger talking about detente. My professors would laugh at me. My professors at Yale would laugh at me when I said I wanted to get rid of communism. Well, that's like saying you want to fill in the Grand Canyon with styrofoam, young man. Um, I don't I don't mean to undermine John Paul II or, or, or Thatcher or Reagan. They had a huge impact on putting pressure on the Soviet Union on 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 starting, you know, dissent going in Eastern Europe and and making Russian imperialism unprofitable. Um, but my point is, if you had gotten a very different man from Gorbachev, somebody like Yuri Andropov, yeah. somebody like Konstantin Chenyenko, they would have started a nuclear war Correct. rather than let the parliament dissolve the Soviet Union, right. rather than let the Berlin Wall fall, rather than let the, the whole Eastern Bloc go democratic. They would have started a nuclear war. And we know this because they almost started one in 1983. And, and I want to recommend to people a fascinating book that I read a few years ago called 1983 Reagan and Dropoff and a World on the Brink. And a lot of people do not realize this, but the U.S. had major military exercises with NATO in 1983. For us, they were routine. We did them every five years. But in Russia, in the paranoid totalitarian state that was the late Soviet Union, they thought. It was a planned U.S. invasion of Eastern Europe. They thought we planned a nuclear first strike. They looked at Reagan's anti-communist rhetoric. Uh, they looked at the Republican Party and, and, they, and they looked at the, the military numbers and they thought they really believed Reagan was invading. I, I have never heard this before. Leave it. I mean, this is the joy of uh, I get to, to have a radio program where I interview people who teach me things. John Smirak will be right back with you. Please don't go away. that I was number one. I ought to know. Easy come, easy go. Welcome back. Uh, my producer, Alvin, informs us that Gorbachev was, in fact, 91 uh, when yesterday uh, he passed away. Uh, so, John, you were just saying that in 1983, and I have never heard this before. If I heard it, I'd forgotten it. But that we were 
1983, uh, before Gorbachev, uh, when Andropov was the head of the Soviet Union, we were in very serious danger of nuclear war. We didn't even know it. That's the ironic part. You and I running around in college could have just died. We would have had no preparation. Here's what happened. Reagan and Thatcher and the other leaders of NATO planned major military exercises in 1983. It's something they did every five years. It was routine, large scale military exercises to test military preparedness for NATO. The Russians didn't know that it was routine. They thought, given the anti-communist rhetoric of Thatcher and of Reagan, they thought it was an attack on the Soviet bloc that might entail a first strike nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. And they came to within five minutes of launching missiles because of a because of a stray signal in West Germany that they interpreted as a missile code launch. Did you L- think five launch. minutes, John? Yeah. Like one guy was 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 told, OK, it looks like the West is launching their missiles. And it's and at one point, the Russian, uh, a Russian, it's a, a, not common knowledge. I mean, I'm just astonished to, to hear this because people kind of lost interest in the Cold War in the 90s. It's like, oh, that's over. We, didn't, yeah. we don't have to worry about about preparedness ever again. We don't have to defend freedom anymore. It's oh, it's 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 done. It won on its own. Well, uh, you, you um, there are a couple of the things that we have time to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about your review of Mr. Jones, the film, Mr. Jones. But let's talk about you. You were mentioning suicide rates. This is actually very important in terms of talking about euthanasia, euthanasia. Euthanasia is now one of the leading killers in Canada. It is three percent of deaths are euthanasia, government euthanasia. Okay, Canada has because has taken the euthanasia agenda, the idea of putting people to death rather than curing them, that that has become a massive cause of death in Canada. And um, I was just reading news stories about like a a Canadian military veteran who had PTSD and uh, the government, you know, they offered him a few different kinds of therapy when they didn't work. The government offered him euthanasia. Let's be clear. If you don't believe in the God of the Bible, this is perfectly reasonable. In other words, the reason we're drifting in this direction yeah. is because uh, faith uh, is receding, certainly in Western countries like Canada. And if you don't take God seriously, you, you naturally gravitate toward the idea that there's an easy solution. It's called euthanasia. Even the term euthanasia is a despicable term. It means a good death. Um, but it really, uh, it's to treat people like animals. Now, let's let's be specific about why believing in Christ makes euthanasia unthinkable. We believe that suffering has meaning or can be given meaning. That suffering can atone for sin, that you can unite your sufferings to Christ, that that suffering can conform you more closely to the example of Christ. There's a reason that even in the early church, people who were killed by the Roman Empire for their faith, the martyrs, they were celebrated. They would have the liturgy on their tomb in the catacombs. Uh, The idea of dying, of suffering like Christ and for Christ, or even if you're just suffering with 
with an incurable disease and, and you're in pain, trying to unite that to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. That is a, tr- a profound traditional Christian spiritual meditation. And it's a way to give suffering significance, to make it somewhat bearable and somewhat human, instead of it simply being like, if your dog is in chronic pain, you put it to sleep because there's no benefit to your dog or to anyone else for an animal to suffer. You don't do that with human beings because we're moral creatures and suffering seems to be part of the calculus of how in a fallen world, God wants us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's why euthanasia is not okay. It's because it's, it's in a fallen world for a reason. God let it happen in a fallen world as part of the divine economy. And if you decide, no, human beings are indistinguishable from shelter pets. Uh, their suffering has no meaning. Put them to sleep. You'll, then you will start doing so on a large scale because it saves a lot of money for bureaucrats. If you get people, you don't have to give them chemotherapy and radiation and surgery and rehab. You know what? We've got a magic pill and it'll send you where you need to go, which is off our balance sheets. Well, this is basically the same is the same story with abortion. You have medical professionals pushing abortion. Yeah. Because they say, why take a risk? Why take a risk? Maybe having a child that's going to have a difficult life. They may suffer, whatever. It's very simple. Just let us kill the child. If you don't. They made that gr- blazingly obvious. If any of you have seen the book Freakonomics, it was a bestseller like 10 years ago. It had a chapter saying that the decline in crime rates in places like New York under people like Giuliani It wasn't due to better policing or the broken window theory of law enforcement. It was due to abortion that that the kids who would have grown up to be criminals got aborted instead. And Uh, proven false. We proven 100 percent false. But it was enormously popular on the left. Eugenics have to go to a break. We'll be back with plenty more Johnson Mirac. Folks, talking to John Smirak. John, please continue what you're saying about Canada and euthanasia. Yeah, in my piece at stream.org, I say uh, the title is If the U.S. is Nineveh, Canada is Sodom. And I'm talking, the, the sin I'm talking about uh, is euthanasia on a large scale. Uh, I just saw a figure that 3% of deaths in Canada are from euthanasia. Now, when. <laughs> sorry. That's sorry, my sorry. stomach. Um, when you have socialist me- socialized medicine, you're always going to have euthanasia as the backdoor option because people get sick and it's expensive. And if people aren't paying for their own health care and saving for it and their family members kicking in, if the government is responsible uh, for everything, then it becomes a cost benefit analysis. It becomes the question of. How much is it worth it to us to keep your grandma alive for another six months? 
you know, really, her, since her suffering has no meaning and it doesn't do us any good here in now, the government. Why wouldn't insurance do the same thing? That was, that was, to me, that's what always worries me about how everybody has medical insurance. And so the insurance providers, it seems to me, are doing something similar. They're kind of. Well, we have laws that don't allow them to, to offer. I mean, because euthanasia is illegal in most states, that's not an option. Okay, if you put euthanasia into the mix, all of a sudden, oh, well, that's the cheapest option. You're refusing the cheapest option. It's like you won't take a generic drug. We're sorry. We're not going to cover your medicine if you won't buy generic. Euthanasia becomes the default cost saving thing that the people in the green eyed shade say, well, we have a magic bullet here. Come on. We can make you take away your pain immediately. And this costs like seven dollars. Now, you've written about this at stream.org, have you not? That's right. And in the piece, I say that, you know, we can't be cocky here in the United States. We're only we're always five years behind Canada on the road to hell. And in this case, what happened during covid was mass euthanasia in blue states when they dumped covid patients in nursing homes. They lied and said the hospitals are full. We know that wasn't true. Let's just talk about New York. The USS Comfort was floating off the off of Manhattan. Cuomo would not send any COVID patients there because Donald Trump had sent the ship. When Samaritan's Purse set up in Central Park, he would not send COVID patients there because Billy Franklin Graham might get credit. No, he sent COVID patients to nursing homes, to the one place where they were guaranteed to kill people, where the most vulnerable Americans, veterans of the Korean War, grandmothers who lived through the Great Depression, Holocaust survivors, the most vulnerable people who are supposed to be protected and loved and cherished in their last years of life. Andrew Cuomo and virtually every other big blue state governor sent COVID patients to those nursing homes. Do we have now, no you and I talk, John. In other words, is there no, no, there's no way we can imagine not. that they would be held to account for this? Apparently not. Uh, the, well, again, they're blue states, and the blue state authorities won't hold them responsible. And if you think people like Mitch McConnell are going to try to do federal charges against them, you, you got another thing coming. But I need to continue the story. This was not just blue state incompetence. This wasn't just democratic cluelessness. This was intentional euthanasia and murder. And how do we know that? It happened in virtually every big blue state. It happened in California and Michigan and New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, almost as if it were coordinated. Well, who could have coordinated it? Joe Biden at the beginning of the COVID crisis, picked as his main COVID advisor, someone named Ezekiel Emanuel, not a doctor, a bioethicist. That is somebody who writes essays about bioethics and sets himself up as a moral authority. Ezekiel Emanuel has publicly said that nobody should live past age 75. It's not worth it. Life after 75 is not worth it. We should not provide even life-saving medicines, even if they're cheap, to anyone over age 75. This is Ezekiel Emanuel, Rahm Emanuel's brother. Joe Biden picked him as his COVID advisor. What advice did he give to the blue state governors? Because they all 
dumped COVID patients like Typhoid Mary into nursing homes, killing tens of thousands of vulnerable Americans while your kids were being told they couldn't go to school. While you and I were being told, oh, you can't go to church, you might spread COVID. They were taking on gurneys, COVID patients, and dumping them in nursing homes to kill the old people. Why? Why? Okay, one, save money. Two, and much more importantly, you spike the death statistics so that the COVID crisis can can get worse and worse, and you can have mail in the 2020 election. It sounds like an insane conspiracy theory, but you're, you've lived through the last three or four years. Nothing is too implausible, too evil for Democrats to do it and Republicans to yawn at it and let it happen. You've had this conversation before, and I said then and I'll say now, that when people mentioned this, my, my wife, Suzanne, uh, early on, I thought, I, I, I can't believe that people like Governor Cuomo would be this evil. I just can't believe it. I now believe it. And it is utterly horrifying. And I think that the only good news, John, is I think that there are many, many people in America that are waking up to this new reality, that it, it takes time to adjust yeah. yourself, yeah. to understand, no, 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 this is actually happening. And why shouldn't it happen? We know that unspeakable evil uh, happened <clears throat> in, the, in the 20th century under the Nazis and under the Soviets. We know that. Uh, and we simply have to understand that these things are now happening in America and we have to stand against it and fight against it. Yeah. I mean, if somebody's going to light up the Empire State Building pink to celebrate partial birth abortion, you really think he's going to quail at killing off some old veterans at a nursing home in order to make sure the Democrats stay in power? I don't think I don't have any problem with believing that. Yeah. Well, again, what you've just said, you've outlined uh, is true. Uh, Before we go to the break, we've got a few minutes left with you. I want to remind people, folks, we do need your help. Uh, You can go to metaxastalk.com. The banner is still up, even though it's September 1st. Please go to metaxastalk.com. Give anything you can. Feeding the Hungry, uh, it doesn't get more simple than that, uh, or dial 844-863-HOPE, please, 844-863-HOPE. Let me spell it, 844-863-HOPE. Once more in Cyrillic, 844-863-HOPE. Didn't think before deciding what to do. Few minutes left with John Zamirak. Uh, in hour two, we have Ask Metaxas coming up in a few minutes. John, what's on your mind? Well, when we talk about organizations like Planned Parenthood having a racist eugenicist history, it, it needs to, we need to make it concrete. There's a very powerful film I think everyone needs to see called Mafia Twenty One M. A.A. Ephesian Frank A. Mafia 21 Black Genocide. It was made by black pro-lifers 10 years ago, and it shows just how aggressive and how powerful and how enduring the eugenics project was in America. Margaret Sanger's organization, Planned Parenthood, and its allies managed to pass laws in the 1920s forcibly sterilizing Americans in 13 states if they failed a culturally biased IQ test. If 
they fail the biased IQ test, they would be forcibly sterilized. At least 60,000 Americans, but maybe 200,000. There's, there's an argument as to how many, but at least 60,000 Americans were forcibly sterilized by these eugenics laws, which the Nazis used as a model for their legislation in Germany. They even took Harry Laughlin, Margaret Sanger's closest friend, and flew him all over Germany, gave him all sorts of awards for inventing eugenics which Nazi Germany could then borrow from Planned Parenthood and American states. In 1968, one of the last Americans to be forcibly sterilized under these laws was this woman, young girl at the time, Elaine Riddick. She was a 15-year-old girl who had been, been raped and gotten pregnant. When she came to the hospital to give birth, the North Carolina eugenics authorities, following North Carolina's law written by Planned Parenthood, told her grandparents that they would cut off her welfare, their welfare check if they didn't agree to have her sterilized because she was feeble-minded and immoral and uh, a social parasite because, you know, she was a rape victim. So while they're delivering her baby, they sterilized her without even telling her. She didn't find out for, for years. And she now has one child, the child of rape, who actually she knows and has a great relationship with, and he's a business owner and a good American, but it's her only child because the North Carolina government sterilized her using Planned Parenthood's laws. Last Friday on Tucker Carlson, she was on his show and I saw her face. I said, I remember her from that Mafia 21 movie. She's the eugenics victim who's telling her story. She runs a pro-life group called the Rebecca Project. Great organization. She was on Tucker Carlson because the Washington Post had a reporter interview her and twist her words to make her sound like she opposed the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Like she was afraid that America would abuse women the way it abused her if it outlawed abortion. They were using her story of being a victim of Planned Parenthood's eugenics laws to help Planned Parenthood kill more black babies. And she had a word, you know, a bone to pick with the Washington Post about that. So we have a call. I have a column about that at stream.org. I hope people will go watch Mafia 21, the film that tells her story and help her organization, the Rebecca Project, which is a comprehensive pro-woman, pro-life organization that she's run for 20 years. People are waking up. I'm convinced that because things have become so horrible, uh, people who otherwise would continue to look the other way have ceased looking the other way. And uh, we're getting it. We're getting an education. Um, I tell you uh, on this program, always folks to go to stream.org, find John Zmirak's articles, print them out, Z-M-I-R-A-K, John Zmirak. Uh, We need to know these things. We need to face these things. And with God's help, uh, we need to fight against these things. I believe God's hand is still on this country, but we're in the middle of a war. The idea that these things could be happening is horrifying, but... uh, we have hope in God. John Zmirak, just so grateful for you, my friend. Thank, Thank you, Eric. You. God bless. Of all the harmful misinformation spread over the past couple of years, one of the most disturbing false narratives was targeted at the Nobel Prize winning human medicine ivermectin. 
What you're about to see will reveal the motive behind the smear campaign against one of the safest and most effective medicines of this era. A medicine that, according to the numerous top scientists I've interviewed this year, could have ended the pandemic before it began. So things are clearly bad, but they're being made even worse by people who have refused to take the vaccine and instead are swallowing horse paste. Horse dewormer. There's no clinical evidence that indicates that this works. It goes beyond that. We actually know that it doesn't work. Ivermectin is ineffective against COVID. But could put you in a coma. It can kill you. It can kill you. Turns out I got COVID. So we immediately threw the kitchen sink at it. All kinds of meds, monoclonal antibodies, uh, ivermectin. One of those drugs he mentioned, ivermectin, is something more often used to deworm horses. <laughs> we should talk about that. That bothered you. It should bother you, too. They're well, lying I, at your network about people taking human drugs versus drugs for it, veterinary... Calling it a horse dewormer is not a flattering thing, I get it's that. It's a lie. They, they, they shouldn't have said that. Why did they do that? I don't know. You're the medical guy over there. Ivermectin can be a very effective medication. You are more likely to die from taking Tylenol than Ivermectin, yet the FDA calls this a dangerous horse deworming medicine. What initially led this was an FDA Twitter account that used the term y'all to express denigration of Ivermectin as a horse drug. I have horses. The truth is that the dose that's used for horses by body weight is the same dose that's recommended for humans, but it's formulated and manufactured to a quality standard that's very different. Lots of medicines are used in both animals and humans, so it's not a sufficient argument for somebody to say, it's a horse dewormer. Yesterday, the CDC put out a national advisory on this, warning the whole country against taking this drug, ivermectin, formulated for horses and cows and sheep. With that um, memo fired to every doctor, then suddenly me and all my early treatment colleagues around the country, we were faced with problems like we'd never had before. I work as an emergency room doctor. And not only an emergency room doctor, I teach advanced trauma life support, a course to other doctors that want to work in the emergency room on how to stabilize patients. We were being told there's nothing you can do. Just wait for Fauci and the FDA to acknowledge a vaccine that they were going to create, and there's no treatment, they said. Why would you want to decrease access to quality life-saving uh, measures for people who are fighting a worldwide pandemic? So it was the first time in history that we ever saw a doctor who could be prosecuted for using a generic safe and effective drug for the application that doctor thought was appropriate. My group of five, the core five of us ICU doctors, collectively were some of the most highly published doctors in the history of critical care medicine. Paul Marek is the most published practicing intensivist in the world. As we sit here today, I'm the most published person in my field in history. But when COVID-19 hit, my clinical an academic world was turned upside down. Twitter, in its wisdom, has decided to suspend the account of Dr. Robert Malone. Now, Robert Malone happens to be the inventor of the mRNA technology of making vaccines. His Twitter account has been suspended because he was allegedly spreading misinformation on COVID-19 vaccines. Let that sink in. We have made contributions to our field for decades. So when we find ourselves like dismissed, you know, and they'll do that to anyone, you're suddenly fringe. 
Touted as a miracle prevention and cure by far-right commentators and anti-vaxxers. I'm not, although I've been characterized as a right-wing proud boy. This is a bipartisan issue. And the physicians represented here are truly a bipartisan group. Our lives started going sideways professionally. Paul started getting numerous complaints against him that he's never had in his career. For the first time in my entire career, I could not be a doctor. I had to stand by idly. I had to stand by idly watching these people die. from the FDA Emergency Use Authorization of Medical Products and Related Authorities. For the FDA to issue an emergency use authorization, there must be no adequate, approved, and available alternative to the candidate product for diagnosing, preventing, or treating the disease or condition. If ivermectin were an effective treatment, the vaccines never would have gotten emergency use authorization in the U.S. If a viable therapeutic strategy existed for outpatients, then the logic supporting universal vaccination with largely experimental products is no longer supportable. The war on ivermectin is waged by very powerful forces with a lot of money. I mean, public health was built on an obsessive global vaccination policy, which ivermectin would have threatened. We've got Pfizer's third quarter earnings. Revenue, they're projecting to be 98 to $102 billion. Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna. Do you know how much profit they made from these shots? $1,000 every second from Wuhan virus vaccines. You're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in geopolitical implications that would be significantly affected if the people had access to a safe and widely available medicine. This is an incredibly cheap drug. It's off license, it's generic, it can be manufactured in huge amounts in India. Remarkably low cost. Merck's patent on ivermectin expired in 1996. In 2021, Merck released a statement claiming that ivermectin was not an effective treatment against COVID-19 and bizarrely claimed, quote, a concerning lack of safety data in the majority of studies. It was plenty safe for Merck to distribute widely when it was still under patent, but now they're claiming the safety record is insufficient. Folks need to understand that just because there is an article out there that asserts that something is false, recognize that those are paid. Every major media outlet in the United States shares at least one board member with at least one drug company. Let me put it in perspective for you. These board members wake up, they go to a meeting at Merck or Pfizer, and then they have their driver take them over to a meeting with NBC to decide what kind of programming that network is going to air. They can't be honest and objective about Big Pharma because Big Pharma pays their bills. In fact, one analysis claimed that nine out of the top 10 drug makers spent more on marketing marketing than they did on research. CNN Tonight, brought to you by Pfizer. 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 The royal wedding is brought to you by Brought to you by Pfizer. If asked the question, did you know how much influence your former employer had on big media and so on, I have no idea. It is clear that the pharmaceutical industry has, has a great deal of sway on what goes on. If you can shape the message, um, then you can shape the world. And that's what they've done. 
When was the last time you turned on the news and ever got an update about how the rest of the world is handling COVID? A group of South African doctors has launched an urgent court application. They are seeking easier access to ivermectin. Globally, at least five countries want to use ivermectin to treat COVID-19, including India and Argentina. There are numerous concrete tests in medical journals around the world that ivermectin does work. The earliest reports we had, one of them we had in Peru, where they got into a good mode of using multi-drug treatment with an ivermectin-based approach that they were crushing their curves. And the president of the Tokyo Medical Association announced to all doctors during a summer surge that they should use ivermectin in the treatment. Within weeks, the hospitalization rates reported out of Japan were lower than at any other time in the pandemic. The real proof positive came when COVID-19 really hit hard in Mexico City. They finally, after lots of struggle, came with an ivermectin-based multidrug approach and literally cleared out their hospitals. And then we had reports all the way through that various states in India. In India, the government has been widely promoting the use of ivermectin. State leaders have just declared that Uttar Pradesh is now officially COVID-free. A region with nearly as many people as the entire United States is totally COVID-free. The miracle success of Uttar Pradesh, not one mention of ivermectin being used. In the countries that it has been used, in the countries where the studies are, the results are not good. They are overwhelming. They are well over 90% success rate. In the United States, it's a horse dewormer, it's horse paste, and only the illiterate, ignorant, and, and or unvaccinated use it. The key paradox is if you look at the mortality rate in the United States, one of the most highly funded medical care systems in the world. And what we find is the mortality in the United States is among the worst in the world. If you look at these innumerable failed policies, there's only one way to understand them. They are literally written by pharmaceutical companies. They can design trials to fail, to disprove the use of cheap medicines, and they can make things appear that they don't work. I sit as a non-voting member of the Active Committee for Drugs with NIH. I've seen the dynamics of what are going on with all those trials, which most of which have failed. Unfortunately, it's eminently possible to manipulate the outcomes of a clinical study. If you want a study to fail, that's dead easy. Now their fourth quote-unquote negative study of ivermectin in a major medical journal. And each time is a media frenzy. There was a systematic review looking at randomized controlled trials that have been done, and they found that there was no benefit for ivermectin in reducing mortality, death to COVID-19, no reduction in symptoms or duration of symptoms for COVID-19, so it does not work. People need to understand that academics have been threatened with losing their position and threatened with getting no further research grants if they speak out against the narrative. Guess why that is? Two-thirds of the world's non-commercial biological research is funded by just three bodies. The Wellcome Trust in the UK, the NIH, and specifically the NIAID under Tony Fauci, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There's this pattern that is consistent with a concerted effort to mislead the public by withholding information using modern technology, media, censorship, really, let's call it what it is, thought control. He could actually control right. uh, exactly what people think. And that yeah. is, the, that is our you, job. Yeah. Whenever you have clear-cut evidence that a drug works, you have an ethical obligation 
to immediately let the people know so that they could have access. What are you telling people is the is the optimal profile? I want a pill, orally administered, single pill, given for seven to 10 days, little drug-drug interaction and low toxicity. Give me that and I'll be really happy. Ivermectin has been used safely for decades, has no known drug interactions, won a Nobel Prize for its success treating humans, and is on the WHO's list of the safest, most effective medicines in the entire world. And it showed an 86% effectiveness to prevent people from contracting COVID. Ivermectin has been used over 4 billion times, and it's used for a wide variety of treatments. Ivermectin has been shown to possess different anti-inflammation, antiviral, and anti-tumor properties. Clinical studies abroad suggest it works. All the studies show that it does have a positive effect. That is the thing about ivermectin, it's not good, it's great. I have never seen an evidence base this large with 81 controlled trials, 10 years of in vitro studies in the lab against a dozen RNA viruses, all showing that ivermectin stops replication. It literally is, in my mind, the single greatest public health achievement in our history of infection control in the world.